0: Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hello, Sophie. How are you today?
2: Wow, that's how you're starting the podcast? (laughs) Um, Margaret, I am well. Thank you so much for asking.
4: Thanks. I'm glad to hear. Brody, how are you? Um, yeah, I, I'm also going to call out this niceness. <laughs> what is this? No, I'm just kidding. I'm great. <laughs> how, how is the weather?
2: Hot. That's what people um, want
4: to know, right? Hot. It's great. Hot. My hair is wet and I need to dry it, so it's perfect. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent.
3: Getting well, closer
0: to the heat death of the universe.
3: Yay. Absolutely. Yay. Yeah, that's why I like joke about the heat death of the universe. And I'm like, we're just the heat death of life fun. Anyway, um, this is Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, a podcast about people who fight against bad things. We don't currently live in a time with a lot of bad things, which is why we have to look to history uh, for our heroes. And this really doesn't reflect about anything about the present.
4: Um, yeah, we just yearn for the past.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so this is part two. I you go back and listen to part one or you'll lose some context. This is part two of a two-part series looking at some Japanese women who liked bombs and disliked tyrants. Let's get into it. On the very first episode of Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, I told the story about the, the Haymarket Affair. which was this labor uprising in Chicago that left several anarchists martyred by the state. In that story is the story of a young man, Louis Ling, who's a poor German immigrant who died at 23 in 1887 by suicide in prison. He'd been in prison more or less for the crime of being an anarchist. And his trial had been this massive scandal that captivated the nation. He also wouldn't have minded doing what he had been accused of doing. He just probably didn't do it. So today, mm-hmm. I'm going to go 36 years into the future from then, 6,000 miles away across the Pacific, to tell the story of Kaneko Fumiko, who's a young Japanese woman who's another anarchist who died by suicide in prison at the age of 23 mm-hmm. after a massive scandalous trial that captivated the nation. You said you didn't like spoilers, but... Um,
4: yeah, you kind of started with the the most exciting stuff, but that's okay. I mean, yeah. it'll be like uh Columbo who done it. <laughs> well, she did. It was a suicide, but <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: totally. Well, actually, it's funny. It, it um, well, we'll get to it. It was like kind of a. There was a lot of like maybe she, maybe they did this to her. Maybe they killed her in jail, um, mm-hmm. and we'll get into that. But. So Kaneko Fumiko was an anarchist, but unlike most of the rest of the Japanese movement, which was concerned with labor organizing and social revolution and all of that, she was a, a nihilist at the core of it all. She she fought for the freedom of all people, but she did it more out of a desire to destroy the existent rather than specifically work on what to replace it with. And mm-hmm. her philosophy was more about celebrating and embodying life by acting on desire, even if that desire led to her own death. That was her okay. whole thing.
4: Okay, hedonist anarchists. Yeah,
3: exactly, yeah. <laughs> And I, I want to start by reading a short bit of court transcripts near the end of uh, her trial because I think it really frames her well. And this is quoted in a book that's actually really good despite the title of the book. The book is called Treacherous Women of Imperial Japan uh, <laughs> by Helene Bowen radiker And and it's actually, it's like, it's saying like treacherous women in a good way, right? You know, of course. Uh, like this episode might be called Ungrateful Women, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so... Judge. Name? Fumiko. Keniko Fumiko. Judge. Age? Fumiko. According to you officials, it's 24. But I myself seem to recollect being 22. But speaking hmm. frankly, I don't believe either. Whatever my age, it has no bearing on the life I'm living now anyway.
4: <laughs> That's how I'm going <laughs> to answer when people ask me how old I am. <laughs> yeah, In <an> audition. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Can you play 25? Um, yes, I am 25.
3: yeah sure whatever (laughs) judge family status Humiko, divine commoner rather than you know divine emperor Mm -hmm. or whatever judge occupation Humiko. my occupation is the demolition of what now exists Hmm. which I'm planning on putting on uh, maybe business cards I'm not I'm not sure judge address Humiko, Tokyo prison
4: (laughs) She's snarky. Yeah. She's 23. Yeah.
3: yeah, exactly. That's how we know she's 23. She's not yeah. lying about that. Okay, so she's born in 1903, probably. She was mm-hmm. she was born out of wedlock, so her birth was never registered, which causes all the mess figuring out like figuring out her age. You know, the, the official records would say one thing, blah, blah, blah. But eventually both of her parents were like, Yeah, it's 1903. Mm-hmm. Her father was an abusive alcoholic from a samurai family who refused to marry her mother because he was a classist little shit and misogynist. Every morning, he would drag out the family's thousand year genealogy scroll and be like, we were descended from royalty and make everyone bow to the scroll. Hmm. Her mother was a peasant. Dad didn't like that. He was dating a peasant. She wound up with a family named Kaniko, her mother's name. Uh, and then Japanese naming convention places the the family name before the given name, as I understand mm-hmm. it. So her her given name is Fumiko, and that's what we're going to call her from here on out, rather than uh, calling cool. Fumiko. And so ever since the Meiji Restoration, people had to be officially registered to do much of anything, right? Because centralization will do that to you. Which is funny because I actually like yeah, I, like you were talking about earlier. Like overall, the Meiji Restoration seemed like mostly do good shit. Mm-hmm. But I keep running across like. Some also real bad shit that it managed oh yeah to pull up.
4: I mean like any government institution or whatever it's of course bad from a perspective of I don't want to live in it but at the same time I was like this was a period when Japan was coming out of isolation um mm-hmm. really and or this might have been also during some isolation as well too but like they were kind of falling behind technology wise. Yeah. And I think during this period, they were only trading with the Dutch and they have like a, a very weird friendly relationship with the Dutch. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know. I I understand why people get fascinated by Japanese history. I mean, it's the uniforms. I I think (laughs) all people really care about is the freaking clothes and the architecture. Yeah. And, and swords. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Like,
3: you know, Europe didn't hold on to the swords as long, and just not as cool. Swords are cooler than guns. Exactly. You know, for. So, for the first years of first nine years of her life, uh, Fumiko is basically a non-person. And when she started when she started school, she wasn't even registered in the classes. She just was auditing the classes. And mm-hmm. also, her her parents didn't have enough money to give her. She was supposed to like give a present to the teacher, but she couldn't afford it. So that was like messing up her ability to go to school. And then eventually she was registered as her mom's sister. Like basically she was like, I'm the daughter of my grandparents or whatever, which is a common workaround for children of unmarried parents. Mm. She wanted to learn how to read. Dad refused to teach her. Mom didn't know how. And she was kind of one step above an orphan. Her dad is this piece of shit who drinks and hits everyone. He's too proud to work most jobs because he's like from the samurai class or whatever. He spends all of the family's money on gambling and brothels. And then he leaves Fumiko's mom for Fumiko's mom's sister. Wow. Yeah. Cool but, guy. <laughs> I know. I know. He's going to come back with some hits later too. Fumiko's mom, not much better. I started off being like, I actually even had it written in the script on the first run through. I was like, but I understand she's a single mom. It's really hard. You know, all of this stuff. And then I, <laughs> as I learned, as I learned more about her later, I'm like, no, Fumiko's mom wasn't much better. Uh, she drifts around and is pretty much absent and at one point considers selling Fumiko to a brothel. She's like eight or nine at this point. Mm. One day, one of her mom's boyfriends bound and gagged young Fumiko and left her hanging from a tree by the river. Wow. I, I, maybe someone eventually found her and brought her home. The, the family scavenged for trash in the street. She didn't have a fucking good childhood. Wow. In 1912... She's finally registered and becomes a real person. This is a year after Suga has died, just for context whatever. And her mom finally gets rid of her successfully. She gets sent to Korea, which has just been annexed by the Japanese Empire, to be raised by her dad's mom, whose family was part of the colonial administration, and who made its money by renting farmers back the land they had stolen from them in the first place, and then loaning money to the Koreans at extortionate rates, which is a good way to get money if all you care about is getting money. Mm -hmm. And so she goes to Korea to be raised by her, you know, grandparents. And her life is shit in Korea. She's basically an unpaid maid. Her grandmother hates her, punishes her constantly for the slightest infraction, made it real clear that she's unwanted. It's like
4: fairy tale Man, level bad. It is. It's it's messed up. Like you read a, a tale like Cinderella and you think that it's yeah. just like a, a rare yeah. thing that someone you know. made up for a story. And it's actually, <laughs> oh yeah, this is actually extremely common back then. This this was most people's lives.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because like, yeah, you're like, you know, like, oh, okay. She's 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 secretly a rich kid. And I'm like, no, she goes from eating trash on the street <laughs> to being an unpaid maid who's yelled at every day. You yeah. Know? And she she lives in this fancy place with a family who tells strangers that she's not related to them. They're like literally like, oh, this is just a poor orphan that we picked up, you know, because they don't mm-hmm. want to admit. But and she's forbidden from telling anyone the truth. She's also forbidden from playing with the neighborhood kids because they're Korean. She's forbidden from doing anything that might damage her fancy clothes. So also when she goes to school, everyone picks on her for being a rich kid, right? Because wow. she can't, she's wearing nice clothes and can't get them dirty or she'll like, you know, suffer. So at 12, she contemplates suicide and she decides instead that she's going to take out her anger on society, not herself. So she decides, knowledge is power, right? I'm going to learn everything I can and wield power against society, uh, which is the most super villain <laughs> origin story. Hell yeah. Um, but, I don't know, whatever. Fuck yeah. And and the only people who show her any, any kindness while she's in Korea are the Koreans themselves.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: And so at this point, I probably gotta explain the Japanese colonization of Korea. So let's do that. Yay, let's <laughs> get into it. Yeah. So so Japan had been trying to conquer Korea for this long ass time. Like the first time they started was two invasions in 1592 and 1597. Mm-hmm. And they were beaten back largely by guerrilla armies called Righteous Armies, which were made up of like a mix of scholars and peasants and Buddhist warrior monks and shit. There's got to be movies about this, and I want to see them. Totally. They exist. And they beat back the largest sea invasion the world had ever seen at that point, 300,000 Japanese soldiers land in Korea. Oh, man. It, it took until D-Day for there to be a larger sea invasion. And, you know, obviously proportionate of population. Um <laughs> Then then, and then, But they're beaten back. Around the end of the 20th century, they finally do successfully take control of Korea. In 1876, a treaty is signed that ends Korea's status as a protectorate of China and passes them off to Japan instead. And Japanese businesses start to open. By 1905, they're under the sphere of Japanese influence. By 1910, they're officially mm-hmm. part of the Japanese empire. And obviously, this doesn't go down without a fight, but it's a fight that Koreans lose. Mm-hmm. And... And one of the reasons that it worked this time, right, is because instead of just showing up with an army, they first showed up with businesses. They first showed up with economic mm-hmm. interests. They first showed up and did, you know, something that's very familiar to people in the 21st century, like uh, economic colonialism. Yeah, they proceed to do colonial shit. They tear down huge chunks of the Korean royal palace and turn the rest into a tourist attraction. Like, look at these people we conquered. That's fucked up. yeah. <laughs> 170,000 Japanese settlers come over and settle on stolen land, which is, and then the Koreans have their land stolen, and then not all of it, but huge chunks of it. Mm -hmm. And then they become tenant farmers, like they have to rent back their own land. Korean peasants get conscripted into labor building the infrastructure. And like you'll you'll run across people who write like this all modernized Korea. And so, like, oh, well, they ended up with infrastructure at least, right? Because they all got conscripted to go build infrastructure by a foreign power
4: exactly terrible yeah. it's like yeah. um it's funny because even the japanese themselves a thousand years before that mm-hmm. were uh invaded a lot by the chinese and their writing system even mm-hmm. today still stems from uh china actually huh. uh uh-huh. it's they uh, the kanji that they use um derives from china even though it, it's been branched off and it is very different now. It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's almost like sometimes I can read a word and it be like, Oh, this is almost like um, reading Spanish in English. It's like, these are the, it's okay. the same alphabet, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the fuck <laughs> this is telling me to do.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And I feel like that's important too. Right. Because it's like, again, I'm not trying to be like, mm-hmm. Japan is an evil empire filled with evil. Like, it's, it's just not the case. It's governments. Governments do these yes, things.
4: Exactly. You know? There's, there's, it's, when you study history and i i I don't know a lot about actually, I do know a lot about history and <laughs> yeah it, it, it they, a lot of people just have the same problems that we have now. It's just yeah. rich people who are too greedy who decide yeah. what um to do with everyone else and want more and hire people to go to war for them and it's, it's a it's a mess there yeah. a whole species <laughs> deserves to die now I'm a nihilist, <laughs> <island>. Jeez. <laughs>
3: Yeah, you would actually agree with um young Fumiko. Fumiko actually <laughs> exactly. shifts off of that by the end, but that is absolutely her position for a while. I believe it. Yeah. So the Japanese show up, they they destroy the forests and then replant them with Japanese trees so that the Japanese wow. people
4: can feel more comfortable. That's the definition of shade.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Koreans are forced to worship at Shinto shrines. Like some people like just show up and leave, and some people actually start praying there, and you know, they uh In 1918, Japan has this rice shortage, and so they force Koreans to produce more rice, export more rice, and then go hungry themselves, Mm. which is familiar to anyone who uh, really likes potatoes and or the country of Ireland. And the largest rebellion against all of this was the March 1st movement of 1919, which led 2 million people joining 1,500 anti-occupation demonstrations, more or less all in one day. I'm not a crazy expert in it, but it's named the March 1st movement because happens on March 1st, and they they declare the independence of Korea. The Japanese government, Would um, you want to guess how they felt about whether or not to respect
4: this independence uh, that they declared? They were totally for it. They were like, you guys have been through a lot. We're going to listen. We're here to listen. We're here to learn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's been um, reparations to this day.
3: Uh, <laughs> Uh no, um no, they they actually uh decide they don't care for it. Mm. And so their reaction is swift and brutal. The police and military kill more than seventy five hundred people, they oh, weren't twice as many as that, and they arrest forty-six thousand fucking people. Just I don't even I I assume that they're not even being kept in jails at that point. I assume
4: they're being kept in camps, Yeah, Japan's you know? not as cool as a lot of people think it is. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah, there's like there's cool stuff about, you know, it's like there's cool yeah. stuff about all of these people, right?
4: Yeah, but, they got that show where the toddlers go outside. <laughs> but, but
3: they okay, also, they also yeah.
4: got other stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, a bunch of the people get publicly executed for their participation, in maybe another country shouldn't rule our country. And this is, it's actually noteworthy that they were executed, because actually part of the Meiji Restoration reforms is that the number of crimes that are punishable by death goes down dramatically. And mm-hmm. so when we're talking about all these executions, today and and on monday it's really easy to be like oh yeah they're just you know they killed a lot of people they actually didn't right they didn't it's kind of like i'm I'm kind of this might be a stretch but sort mm. of like how the u.s has capital punishment but it's it's not the go-to you know
4: right um yeah i hear you i mean like a lot of history before even you know uh things like even just the television were <laughs> extremely mm-hmm. brutal. I don't think people yeah. understand yeah. how much more brutal uh, governments were before we got iPhones.
3: <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, got in another episode. I talk about like uh, the people in England who would um, hang draw and quarter people. And um, oh yeah, it's it's not it's not polite, you know. <laughs> um, so the Japanese occupation of Korea is. is real bad news. It ends up actually lasting until 1945 when Japan surrenders at the end of World War II. And then everything's happy for Korea ever since. Just kidding. The USSR and the U.S. (laughs) split up Korea like the spoils of war, cutting up a turkey, and basically North and South Korea have been at war ever since. Uh, Mostly Mm -hmm. not a hot war, mostly a cold war, but hooray fun times. Back to Fumiko. So she's in Korea and she's being mistreated by her colonial family that hates her. Mm -hmm. And she gets real anti authoritarian. You'll be shocked to know. <laughs> After the March 1st movement is crushed in 1919 and she's 16 years old, she gets sent back to Japan. And she's supposed to like go get married or whatever, right? But this mm-hmm. is not not her plan. You'll be also shocked to know that she doesn't want to just go get married because <laughs> she has to acquire superhero, supervillain levels of knowledge, right? Yeah. And she has a society to fight against. So her dad shows up and he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so bad. I'll be a good dad now. Which was a plot to sell her into marriage to her own uncle as Zen priest. Hmm. And who is also legally her brother because of the fuckery with the registration. Ew. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, and this is one of the advantages of, um, of fucking around, she gets caught dating a boy her own age and her uncle is like, oh, never mind, you're a dirty whore and not a virgin anymore. Nice. So he decides not to marry her so when in doubt, find an age-appropriate person of a gender you're attracted to and fuck them if you have problems,
4: you know? Yeah, exactly.
3: So she can't handle her father anymore, and so she fucks off to Tokyo. Okay, it's 1920, she's 17. And once she's there, she gets a job as a newsie, which is mostly a job for boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she convinces her employer that she's more of a boy than a girl anyway. She's like, look, I, in my character, this is later, she writes about this in autobi- her autobiography. <laughs> She's like, in her character, gait, speech, and general behavior, more of a boy than a girl. So she gets an advance on her salary as a newsie uh, and goes to schools full of mostly boys because most of the schools for girls were like about needlework and shit. She mm-hmm. wants to study math, English, classical Chinese, and she wants to go to medical school. Every day, she goes to school until 4 p.m. and then sells newspapers till midnight. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what time the school started, but I'm, I'm assuming yeah. this. Who's When's she going to do her
4: homework? That's, yeah. that's
3: a lot. Yeah. So on the street, she's selling papers and she sees the city because she's just basically hanging out by this bridge selling newspapers. And she sees soapbox orators, the Salvation Army, an opposing Buddhist Salvation Army that didn't like the Christian Salvation Army. She, she tries to get into Christianity, but it doesn't stick, I think because she keeps sleeping with people when she wants to and she doesn't like being told <laughs> that she can't. So she starts selling, but while she's sort of Christian, she sells soap on the street at a soap vendor's stand. This doesn't pay her well enough to, in order to keep going to school. So she can't keep mm. doing it. So she becomes a live-in maid for a Christian family, but she didn't have time for class if she's a live-in maid. And she hated them because they're all rich hypocrites who oppressed everyone and cheated on each other. And were just real bad folks. So she gets a job at a socialist newspaper and Along the way, she dates various boys, but she's just fucking pissed at how noncommittal they are, how they refuse to take her seriously, and the general attitude that, of being used, right? She, mm. she refers to it as she gets treated like a toy by the boys that she's dating, and she doesn't fucking like it. And she came to Tokyo just in time for this upswing in the leftist movement um, across every level of society, right? It's the blooming again after the winter period. The government is full of young blood who want parliamentary rule, and the masses are full of communists and anarchists and feminists, despite constant repression. Fumiko, she stays out of this. She works for the newspaper and, and all this other shit. But at, at her core, she's a nihilist. She's twenty one. She worked days as a live in waitress at a socialist restaurant called Socialist Stew. I'm I'm, I can imagine this, but not easily. You know, it's like you have your restaurant called Socialist Stew. Yeah,
4: probably not the same alliteration.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's not. It's um, I wrote it down in Japanese, and then I didn't, uh, and then I deleted it when I made my final script. It's fine. And in exchange for tuition, basically she's like, all right, I get room and board. I work here and you pay for my schooling. And it seems to work out well in general. She goes to classes at night. She still doesn't join any formal movement. She's pissed that the socialist boys are just as shitty to her as the regular boys, which unfortunately is not surprising. And she borrows books on politics and philosophy from one of her best friend is this woman who's a fellow student who's a nihilist and gets her into all this philosophy. And she writes about her political awakening. I'm going to quote this. This is from her autobiography. I knew what socialism preached was true, but I could not accept socialist thought in its entirety. Socialism seeks to change society for the sake of the oppressed masses. But what would it accomplish truly for their welfare? Socialism would create a social upheaval for the masses, and the masses would stake their lives in the struggle together and those who had risen up on their behalf. But what would the ensuing change mean for them? Power would be in the hands of leaders, and the order of new society would would be based on that power. The masses would become slaves all over again to that power. What is revolution then but the replacing of one power with another? Even if one did not have an ideal vision of society, one could have one's work to do. Whether it was successful or not was not our concern. It was enough that we believed it to be a valid work. I want to carry out a work on my own, for I feel that by so doing, our lives are rooted in the here and now, not in some far-off goal. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So that's like you earlier, you were like, well, yeah, this is like nihilism is the most amorphous fucking word in the English language, as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. you know, like it can get, it can mean so many different things. Um, so this is what it means to her. And, and she writes about this and she basically says, and I actually really like this. I'm, I'm not a nihilist. Um, I, I actually do believe in the specific creation of better societies, but, but I, I really like this attitude she has, which is that we all have our one true task and you don't have to fulfill the task. You only have to work at it. Nice. And then one day, as she's living her life, she reads a poem in a journal by a young Korean poet and nihilist named Pak Yul. And she basically is like, I like this poem so much, I'm going to find this guy and fall in love with him. Hmm. Typical. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right? Typical Nathan Fielder fan. (laughs) And I think this is why 23-year-old boys write poetry. Yeah. So, her friends introduce him to him, introduce him to Park, and he's been a a rickshaw driver, a mailman, a ticket scalper, and a longshoreman. Some of the longshoremen's unions were Korean at that point, as I understand. Basically, the Koreans living in Japan are living as this, you know, essentially permanent underclass. Mm-hmm. And, but he's unemployed at the time that they meet. He's living as his friends put it, a stray dog. He stays with and relies on his friends, and he writes poetry and he does odd jobs and he like publishes anarchist you know newspapers and shit um and I want to say I've known people like that but really I'm just actually describing my
4: own early 20s <laughs> yeah,
3: so
4: I know people like that including yeah you.
3: <laughs> yeah it's good work if you can get it um then mm-hmm. your other friends do the work oh I see the problem in this plan okay <laughs> so so he comes to visit her at work at her request and then waits for her as she left school one day like goes and waits under the trees as she leaves school. And they have their first date. They go to a Chinese restaurant and neither of them understand the etiquette around tea and they like flirt over their awkwardness about not knowing like both rich people shit and something from another culture that mm-hmm. like bonds them. But our girl, Fumiko, she's straightforward. She said, and I'm actually, I'm usually paraphrasing when I say things as cheeky as what I'm about to say, but um, I'm quoting her autobiography. <laughs> I'll get straight to the point. Do you have a wife? Or well, if not exactly a wife, Someone like, say, a lover? Because if you do, I want a relationship to just be one between comrades. Well, do you? And he's like, no, I'm I'm single. She says, I'm Japanese, but I think I can say I'm not prejudiced against Koreans. I wonder, though, if you have any feelings against me. He replies, no, it's not ordinary people that I hate. It's the Japanese ruling class. And I even feel a bond with people like you who aren't prejudiced. So far, so good. There's only one test left in the way. Okay.
5: <laughs>
3: Are you working in the nationalist movement, she asks. And he says, I sympathize with it. Now I am paraphrasing it. He's like, I mm. sympathize with it, but I'm an anarchist and I basically can't participate in the nationalist front directly, right? Uh, I have to fight for independence in my own way, not for the nation of Korea. And this is the answer Fumiko is looking for, partly because it's not just being like, oh, you can't be like, because like nationalists aren't cool. It's actually because she's like, I'm Japanese and I don't want to be doing anything shitty by like... Okay. Oh, fucking with your shit it's a match fumiko pays for the food because he's a fucking crust punk um <laughs> ed but they they sort out that she has more money than him i think he offers to pay and she's like no i got it and she finally meets a boy who takes her seriously and doesn't treat her like a toy and i i love their love story they uh pack for his part he'd been born a commoner born of commoners just going back forever mm-hmm His father had died when he was four. His mother was very kind and loving. He was very much a mama's boy. He was really good in school, but he had to drop out to work on the family farm to make enough money. So he runs away from home and he goes back at 15 in order to go to school anyway. And he gets all into radical politics. But he saw that swapping out Japanese rule with Korean rule wouldn't bring people out of poverty. So, you know, he becomes an anarchist. 17, he moves to Tokyo. And... The two of them, now that they're together, they 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 end up in a crew of, and this gets really messy because they basically made up new names for their groups constantly, and they were like, "Oh yeah, we're yeah. a we're an official organization called the Outlaws or the Society of Malcontents," but they like they change
4: their name when they're bored. Yeah, they're like bands. I get it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally, totally,
3: and you know, and the Society of Malcontents is one of the main ones that they get called. Because mainstream papers love to complain about all the malcontent Koreans. So they're like, yeah, we're fucking malcontent. What do you fucking want?
4: That sounds cool. <laughs> yeah.
3: And they publish a bunch of different newspapers and, or, you know, that are probably just fucking zines. And, or maybe they're full on magazines or maybe they're news. I, you know, I don't, I don't know.
4: I doubt it. They're zines. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. One's called Black Wave because, you know, they, because um, mm-hmm. they're not, they're anarchists. Another's called The Insubordinate Korean or, the title is actually translated also as The Cheeky Koreans. Mm-hmm. Just funny because earlier I said, you know, I don't usually say something so cheeky as this. I'm like, that's not actually not a word that's part of my regular vocabulary. But I've been <laughs> thinking about the cheeky Koreans for days. Every I time I this. hear
4: it, I add it back in. I'm like, this is getting a couple more rotations this week. <laughs> um,
3: So they actually write fairly moderately. They're super radical in their politics, like personally, but they're writing really moderately because their whole point is that they're like, we're trying to actually change people's minds, right? And then the other thing is, is that they actually have advertisers. Like there's like department stores and Mm. shit advertising in their papers. That's funny. And the history books I read are like, you know, we're not actually really sure whether this was like earnest, like this department store was like, oh yes, this is where we will find our customers. Or if basically they showed up and were like, is such a nice story you got here wouldn't it be a shame if the people around here thought you were the enemy of the working class hmm so maybe it was extortion maybe it was regular advertisers much like how this is how we get our own advertisers on the show isn't that right Sophie
4: <laughs> great so, transition
3: yeah see Sophie's nodding
6: Yep, nope,
3: 100% yeah so here are the ads from people who have very nice department stores <laughs>
0: Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: But We Loved is a new podcast about queer history coming May 15th. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic.
6: Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called Survival sex.
7: But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught. A history of courage and perseverance.
2: I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it.
7: And it was a history full of love.
6: The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible
7: and while learning this new queer history from my elders I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down the key is to understanding yourself learning to love and embrace yourself from iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalvis, and this is But We Loved listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app
1: And we
3: are
4: back. Okay. Kumiko's family doesn't like her, right? Her family's not the best people. Her family sucks. Yeah. Her family was here and punched him in the face. I,
3: and they would deserve it. Yeah. They also, you will be shocked to know this, are racist. Oh. Uh, they formally disinherit her because she's living with a Korean. Mm-hmm. Um, in court later, this is like not, like in court, because they're all on, you know, and they're like, why did you disinherit her? And they're like, she's living with a Korean. So they move into a flop house together and they talk about how the rich, and they're like, you know, then and become like common law husband and wife, but they don't get married. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, rich people get honeymoons, but we're not rich. So we're going to publish political tracks together to celebrate our relationship. (laughs) And then in addition to writing stuff, they decide, or rather, uh, Pac and his friends actually first, decide without Fumiko's knowledge at the beginning, we should get our hand on some bombs. Because there's this problem where there's an emperor, you see. It's a very similar problem as people have faced in the past. Mm-hmm. And so they decide to solve the problem directly. And Fumiko finds out that they've been trying to get bombs and not telling her. And she's fucking mad. She's like, you said you would be treating me as your equal and a comrade. And he's like, I'm fucking sorry. And, from you know.
4: <laughs> Classic. Sorry, babe.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it's, it, you know, he might've been like trying to protect her. She clearly didn't want to be protected or whatever. He's, he's not without his faults, but I think he's, he's doing way better than everyone else that she's ever dated. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to tell exactly how far into planning the assassination they got. It's like, they might not have had an actual specific plan and they might've, they might've been, but they, they specifically, they're actually not going after the emperor. They're going after the crown prince who's soon to be the emperor. Okay. Uh, they want to, Introduce him to a stick of dynamite and see how the the pair of them get along. Mm -hmm. And once again, part of the reason they're doing this is because people say the emperor is descendant of the gods uh, and that the emperor is a god. And they wanted to prove he was a human being by watching him die like a human being. Or as Fumiko later said in court, the notion that the emperor is sacred and august is a fantasy. The people have been led to believe that the emperor and crown prince represent authorities that are sacred and inviolate. Nominee is another word I don't know how to pronounce, but they're simply vacuous puppets. The concepts of loyalty to the emperor and love of nation are simply rhetorical notions that have been, have been manipulated by the tiny group of the privileged classes to fulfill their own greed and interests. So that's her justification. She yeah. goes to try and find some
4: bombs. She would have been great on Twitter, too. I know. She probably would have gone
3: arrested for what she said on Twitter, but
4: she it'd would have come out with a though. lot of. I know, it
3: would be a really good thread. <laughs> the quote tweets would have been worth it. Um, <laughs> and then while they're running around trying to find a bomb, one of the deadliest earthquakes in human history hits Japan. Have you, have you heard of this? The Kanto earthquake of 1923. I'm not sure to put you on the spot. I just like literally don't know how much.
4: Not that one specifically, but I just know that they have a, t- a ton of earthquakes. Yeah. Um, they're right by a fault line. It sucks.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On September 1st, 1923, the Kanto earthquake leveled much of Tokyo and uh, Yokohama, which is the second largest city in Japan. Mm-hmm. It, is, it only lasts four to 10 minutes. In those four to 10 minutes are the resulting result of it. The death toll stands at 105,385 people killed wow. by the earthquake. Many are killed by fires that rage throughout the city. Some people get their feet stuck in melted asphalt and couldn't run away from the fires. Mm. A single fire tornado hit an army depot and incinerated 38,000 people who were sheltering there. Uh, People couldn't put out the fires because the water mains were broken. Mudslides buried houses. An entire village fell into the sea. 30-foot-high tsunami waves struck the coast within minutes. 1.9 million people are left homeless. 37 miles away from the epicenter, the quake moves a 121-ton statue of Buddha, like two feet. And unfortunately, the emperor was off somewhere else at the time. So he is totally fine. Hmm. And then things got bad. <laughs> oh. Yeah. In the wake of the earthquake, he started blaming Koreans. Wow. Uh, they not for the earthquake
4: itself, but for the fires. This is like how they blamed um, like uh, tornadoes on gay people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know that A couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I had this power, Mm -hmm. you know? Um,
3: Yeah, and so there's rumors that Koreans are running around starting fire and poisoning wells. Uh, It's possible the government started those rumors. They definitely at least repeated the rumors and proclaimed as part of their official proclamation during it all, quote, Koreans and socialists are planning a rebellion and treacherous plot. We urge the citizens to cooperate with the military and police to guard against Koreans. And they declare martial law and send 70,000 soldiers out into the streets. And during all of this, right, the, the Korean longshoremen unions go out and do what leftists do when there's crisis, actually what people do when there's crisis, usually when they don't do the other bad thing we're about to talk about. And they start doing mutual aid. They, they run around and just start feeding people. And they're just trying to mm. take care of people. They're like, we're an organized group of people who carry around heavy shit for a living. Let's go fucking save some people, right? But they, they had red flags with them. And that was scary. And people don't like being scared, so they got angry. And so violence ensues. And in 2020, when there were these massive wildfires out west, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, people from all of these, like, like, uh, mutual aid groups formed and went to small towns to set up mutual aid disaster relief. And then armed right-wingers, who were also from out of town, showed up and blamed them for starting all the wildfires. Um, So some things never change.
4: I guess Mm -hmm. if you look at enough history a lot of political things are very predictable (laughs) in a sad way yep
3: yeah which is actually in a weird way it's like part of why I study history I mean like part of Of it is so that we can like feel inspired that people actually can like step up and do things and part of it is just like literally like you know I don't know if you're playing a video game and there's like the swinging blades that you got to run past you like look at them for a fucking minute and figure out what the fucking pattern is before you run through (laughs) you know so this means open season on Koreans. Bigots run around and massacre all the ethnically Korean people they could find. Six to 10,000 people get murdered in all of this. Wow. Uh, vigilantes, which of course includes cops and military, set up checkpoints and just kill people. They like have people show up and they're like, pronounce the following words. And if you pronounce it with an accent, they kill
4: you. That's so uh, fucked up.
3: And I promised you swords in this episode. And I also told you that I'm very sorry about mm-hmm. how the swords get used. One of the One of the images that um, sticks with me from this whole thing is that people would go and take down their grandfather's katana off the wall, right? Mm -hmm. From the Meiji Restoration era stuff and run around and then go murder the shit out of people.
5: Mm.
3: At one point, the army arrested 3000 people and then just murdered 300 of them. And, and it wasn't only Koreans who got targeted, Chinese folks and other ethnic minorities were mistaken for Koreans and killed. Even Japanese people with regional accents couldn't pronounce certain words right, so they would get murdered. And in some cities, a quarter of the Korean population was killed. So, and and credit where it's due, some of the cops in the military actually do try and stop the violence. It was kind of like a crapshoot if you ran into cops in the military, whether they were going to help you or kill you. Mm. But some of them run out and try and stop the violence. And for good and bad motivations, they placed 24,000 Korean people into protective custody. Right, and this actually saves a lot of people's lives. But and this will this will shock you. They use it to be bad.
4: Oh man! <laughs> they Why uh, can't the cops yeah. be like they are in the movies one time. <laughs> I know, I know.
3: They they just round up and kill everyone they have their eye on anyway. Right, the socialists, mm-hmm. the anarchists, and the communists all all three of those like major political leftist parties lose leaders during this time. Uh, some of the anarchists who got killed was this couple who was the most prominent feminist in in Japan, and then mm-hmm. the most prominent anarchist in Japan, and their six year old nephew get killed. Mm-hmm. And there's one story where they get killed in the street and thrown into a well, and there's another story where um, they're in protective custody and were murder- strangled to death in jail. Years ago, I met some Japanese anarchists who gave me a zine about the the martyrs of the Japanese anarchist movement, and there's a mm-hmm. frightening number of like actual literal like under ten years old children. In their zine about martyrs interesting the one upside is september 1st is now a disaster prevention day in japan with, with people like drill about how to deal with tsunamis and typhoons and shit i hope it includes curriculum about how not to become a um, racist murdering mob
4: yeah this was only 100 years ago it's yeah insane
3: yeah uh so that's the earthquake and the massacre and the massacre it's not looking good, right? The government is like, okay, first of all, the newspapers can't report on this for a couple of days. And in the meantime, we need someone to take the blame. So why not some dirty Korean anarchists to take the blame? Why not Park Yol or Pak Yol? His name gets spelled both ways, but I believe it's pronounced Pak. Mm-hmm. So after the earthquake, both Fumiko, who's not even Korean and Park, were taken into, quote, protective custody from which Fumiko actually never returns almost certainly they got arrested right away because cops had been tracking their organization because let's be real. They were like, not really good at their job of being revolutionists. Um,
4: Uh, Yeah. I mean, they were printing a lot of literature. They put themselves out there.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And they'd both been arrested a bunch of different times for various demonstrations and actions. Uh, Pacquiao used to beat up anyone who was like stealing from the movement. Um, They get charged with vagrancy while they're in jail. And the reason they get charged, first of all, it's a little weird that the government decides to charge people with vagrancy now that 1.9 million people are homeless. Mm -hmm. But worse, the police actually set them up to be arrested for vagrancy because they went to their landlord and said, look, these two aren't coming back. So rent out to someone else. So they're evicted while they're in jail. And they're like, oh, you don't have a home. I guess you're a vagrant. I guess you belong in jail. That sucks. Yeah. Uh, A bunch of the rest of their friends, mostly Korean, get arrested as well. Most of these are released. One guy, uh, Kim Chun-han, got charged with explosives, but not high treason in the end. I think he's the one who went to uh, Shanghai to get bombs from, and they actually failed at this, I think. I think they. I think in the end, they didn't even have any fucking bombs.
5: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: and it was his lover who probably under torture from the government had informed on everyone. I don't want to call her a snitch because I think she broke under torture and I believe those are mm-hmm. functionally different things. Um, but she told them, Yeah, they're trying to get bombs from Shanghai to kill the Imperial family. And Fumiko herself, she's in jail. She confesses. This was a really bad plan. Um, This is pretty much the the mistake that ends her life. And because in the end, there's actually not that much material evidence except for uh, Fumiko and Pak's own confessions. Mm. But they're in jail. They're facing all this crazy shit. And they decide to get married. Uh, they had been sort of against getting legally married, but then they decide let's get legally married for a couple reasons. One, the legal protections that allow Fumiko to be buried alongside Pak in his family graveyard in Korea rather than like have her family her family who sucks like fuck uh, yeah. to to get her body. Um, but it's also this fuck you to Japan, right? Because she's a Japanese woman mm-hmm. and she's going to marry a Korean and it's like bad or whatever. But there's all this really interesting shit where some of the people involved in their case are like kind of sympathetic to them. And I think I think it's partly because they know that they're just being fucking set up. Um, they get allowed to take their portrait together uh, around the time of their wedding I think it's before they get married. And this photo exists. And because they're like cool ass nihilists, they take this scandalous photo where Pac is sitting in a chair and Fumiko's close up against him and she's reading a book and his hand is just like on her tit. Um,
5: <laughs>
3: and it's just like, ah, yes. Here we are, you know, um, everyone should Google this photo. And then after this photo, they're left alone for a conjugal visit. And their trial is this big fuck off deal, especially in Korea, of course. But Japan is obviously following it too. And people know the point of this trial is to cover up the the massacre. They're trying to retroactively justify the martial law that they declared. Mm. And Fumiko and Pak know it too, right? So they're defiant as fuck in court. The first day, they both show up in traditional Korean garb, which they were like had to go through a lot of hoops in order to do. It causes this big uproar, and overall, they're just like continue to just be like fuck you the whole time they're in court. And you know, their defiance get met, gets met with uproar in the courtroom. Everyone's applauding, so it becomes a closed trial. The public can't see it anymore. Fumiko said to the court, "Quote, you'd better kill me. However many years you keep me in prison." If you let me out into society once more, without fail, I'll show you I can start afresh. I'll show you I can annihilate myself and save you the trouble. Come, come, send this body of mine anywhere you like, even to the scaffold, Hachoji prison. Bodies only die once, do as you please. If you do something like that with me, it will just be proof positive for me that I've lived my life to the full. I'll be satisfied with that. Hmm. Um, So she knows what she wants.
4: Yeah, it's extremely badass too yeah. badass for me i don't think I I'll, ever, I'll ever get to that point
3: <laughs> yeah throughout history there's all these times where like leftists get you know an anarchist get thrown up in, in court and and like some portion are like fuck yeah i did it i'll do it again and then there's another portion that's like i'm real sorry i probably shouldn't have <laughs> done that and then like i'm real sorry buds like usually go to jail for a while but are like more likely to go home in the end yeah. You know, and I am not picking. I am not picking between those two. I'm holding both options open. I'm not <laughs>
4: committing to a defiant yeah. I'm uh, more trial. like, fuck you. I did what I did and I'm gonna sit in my cell and wait my time.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And then when I get out, I'll be good, I promise. Um, <laughs> it's like whatever. I mean, when you get out, you can do whatever you want, you know. But you know who else wants you to do whatever you want?
4: Is it one of your sponsors?
3: It is. It is actually. Well, it's actually the toddlers who, who smile unsolicited. Don't solicit smiles from people, especially <laughs> toddlers.
4: Back. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Um,
3: as well as these other advertisers.
0: Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: But We Loved is a new podcast about queer history coming May 15th. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic.
6: Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex.
7: But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught. A history of courage and perseverance.
2: I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it.
7: And it was a history full of love.
6: The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible.
7: And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeart Radio app.
3: And we are back. And things are not looking good, except they are looking good because their motivations are entirely opposite of what my motivations would be at this point. (laughs) Because they get sentenced to death on March 25th, 1925. And 10 days later, fearing riots and backlash, especially in Korea, the emperor pardons them and gives them life in prison instead. And it's actually quite possible that the judge the entire time had been trying to get them to be repentant so that he could get away with giving them life in prison instead of death. To avoid all this political scandal. So, a lot of times during the trial, it was like, kind of like, come on, aren't you at least a little bit sorry? Like, look how bad your life <laughs> is. Don't you think it's like, and they also were like, you complete insanity. You're like kind of crazy. Right. So, actually, in a lot of ways, their strategy at trial was literally, how do we get the death penalty? How do we take control over our own lives and like control this narrative, the only direction, the only direction that we know how to control it? Interesting. And it, and their insistence on, on their own guilt of treason, right? Because high treason is their, their charge. It frustrates the government's plan. And the, the courtroom drama was just about how the story would be presented to the world. So this is her whole fucking plan. When she's given her pardon, Fumiko tears it up to shreds in her cell while crying, says to the chaplain and prison officials, you toy with people's lives, killing or allowing to live as it suits you. What is this special pardon? Am I to be disposed of according to your whims? So she doesn't like it. And then in prison, she writes more than 200 poems, writes her untitled
4: autobiography. Jealous. <laughs> At 23? Jeez Louise. I know. I wish. <laughs> um, yeah, and she,
3: she, her, her biography just goes up to when she meets Pac and then cuts off there because it's like going to be kind of like part of her it's part of her defense strategy in a way it's part mm-hmm. of her like let me show you how fucked up this society is let me show you what happened to me in my life and but kind of interestingly right in prison she becomes more optimistic of a person like her nihilism remains but it becomes this way to affirm the beauty and joy one can find in life and mm-hmm. she's no longer on the like fuck it humanity should be over now you know can't relate <laughs> <laughs> Well, you just clearly need to go to jail for high... Nope, no one should have yeah, to do true. that. Yeah. Get some poetry written. To... She makes another confession near the end of her trial, and she confesses that she wasn't as guilty as she'd claimed. She's like, look, I only heard of the bomb plot after they failed to get the bombs. And she didn't do this because she wanted mercy. It was actually just that she basically wanted to have the record be accurate and honest. Um, and she didn't want to, like... Uh, stolen valor, basically, right? She didn't want to, like... Mm-hmm claim to be more badass than she was, which is funny because I struggle to find people who are more badass in history. (laughs) At one point, when she's still in school, she's talking to her best friend, who's another nihilist, about death and what there is to fear in it. Fumiko told her friend, I can state from my own experience that what people fear in death is the loneliness of having to leave this world forever. Though people may not be consciously aware of all the phenomena around them under normal circumstances, the thought that 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 which makes them themselves be lost forever is a terribly lonely thing. So she, she writes and thinks about suicide. And then the headlines in Tokyo on July 31st, 1926 read, from a hemp rope tied to iron bars, death by hanging in the bright morning sunshine, Kaniko Fumiko hanged herself in prison under the very noses of those checking on her every 10 minutes or so. And her death is recorded as suicide, right? Mm-hmm. she'd been refusing to eat. She'd been refusing work detail that the women in the prison did. And this is a little bit odd to me. The work detail that women in the prison were supposed to do was mm-hmm. um, weave hemp rope. So she'd been like, all right, fuck it, all work. Give me, give me some hemp. Oh, yeah. I'll weave a rope. <laughs> so she weaves a rope and hangs herself. <laughs> and prison authorities tell her mother and offer her mother the body, which is like not the plan, right? Right. Fortunately, her mother's a piece of shit. So her mother refuses to take the body. Um, Instead, her mother apologizes for her ungrateful daughter having killed herself instead of doing what she was supposed to do, what the emperor told her to do, which is live in prison. At one point earlier, her mom thought Fumiko had died in the earthquake and said she was glad because her daughter's ideas had become twisted. And it seems really likely that there's actually no foul play involved. A lot of people at the time, and a lot of people when you first kind of hear about this thing, you're like, okay, yeah, right, like, of course she, you know much like Epstein or whatever. She totally killed herself or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I actually, I, I agree with some of the historians I read about this, that, uh, that she, she killed herself because she, the prison wanted her to live because she'd been ordered by the emperor to fucking right. live. This divine command that she's refusing in her like,
4: final act of refusal. Yeah, they didn't want her to be a martyr.
3: Yeah, totally, exactly. And, and she ends up a martyr, um, and the Korean independence movement makes a lot out of it. And for her, her willingness to die was necessary to affirm life. And it was the only way to live free, was to be willing to die. And here's a poem she wrote in prison. The moon shines, it shines, and yet people still follow an endless dark road. After her death, it was was actually the preliminary court judge that gives her manuscript of her autobiography to her friends who published it in 1931. But it's not long before her death, before her legacy starts getting used by whoever wants to use it. I actually talked with a a currently living Korean anarchist about this, uh, who who doesn't want to be named. The story of Humiko and Pak gets used a lot by Korean nationalists who see them as as heroes of national liberation. But the two were adamant in that they were internationalists, that they were anarchists. And for Humiko in particular, she was a nihilist. They wanted Korea to be free from Japan, right? But not just to create its own authoritarian state. Uh, their trial lawyer a few decades later gave this speech about how Fumiko is a pure self-sacrificing woman who gave herself for her husband and her husband's country. Mm. Um, And I I get the feeling Fumiko wouldn't be happy about that. No. (laughs) She'd be Um,
4: fuming. Fuming
5: Fumiko.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She might have some bombs to answer to that. Exactly. And while the pair is on trial, right? This is part of how it's proven that it it's just all this show trial. It's like they're focusing on these two so that they can blame about this other thing. They actually kind of don't care as much about the conspiracy. Not to be outdone by the nihilists, a communist tries to take down the crown prince Hirohito too. Mm-hmm. Daisuke Namba is a communist who takes a shot at the guy's carriage on 27th of December, 1923. He only shoots once. I don't know what's with these historical assassins. He shoots once. He injures someone else in the carriage he gets arrested, beaten, tried, and executed. Uh, he said it he did it in part to avenge the death of Kodoku, the anarchist who'd been killed during the high treason incident, the, the boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to say this is the kind of left unity I can get behind. <laughs> and if you know, if communists wants to avenge my death by trying to kill a tyrant, more power to you. Word. The prime minister takes a responsibility for this lapse in security, and he and the cabinet, a ton of other people resign and more conservative people take over. They passed the Peace Preservation Law of 1925, which basically makes it illegal to criticize the idea of private property. You get mm. 10 years in prison if you criticize the idea of private property. This clearly fucks up the left. And it's like, and here I like, actually even originally had the script and I'll say it anyway. It's like, this is one of the problems with like individual actions that are not backed by mass movements, right? It's like, someone takes a fucking pot shot or like, it's like, oh, I'm gonna throw a bomb, but I'm not actually part, connected to anything. And everything just gets worse. most of the time
4: it's very hard
3: but this particular one is interesting to me because hirohito fucking sucked and if he succeeded okay so so later during the same period another uh, korean independence activist throws a hand grenade at the emperor narrowly misses killing him and he becomes hirohito not the korean independence activist he becomes Mm -hmm. one of the longest reigning monarchs in, in human history he rules from 1926 till 1989 He's the emperor during World War II. He invades China. He takes Japan in its fascistic direction. Uh, He's responsible for millions and millions of Um, deaths. The Korean source I talked to said, picked the number, like used the number 20 million deaths that they could blame Hirohito Mm -hmm. on, uh, on Hirohito. And God only knows what the world would look like if any of these people had succeeded, you know? So I think it's messier because usually I'm kind of like, eh, these one-off assassinations—they're like brave and shit—but usually just make everything fucking worse, you know?
4: Yeah, exactly. It's like shoot, shoot, true. Like, uh, yeah. you got it right behind the head or something, like John Wilkes Booth, even though I didn't yeah. like him. <laughs> what he no, I'm was thinking. successful at the one thing that he did?
3: <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I shouldn't have you on. No, I can't even make a joke about that. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ! Fuck that guy. Uh, oh my god. So I hate him because he makes me have sympathy for a U.S. president who was also a racist, you know? know. Like know. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, he makes... Okay, anyway. <laughs> so, to Pacquiao, he survives prison. Uh, he's freed in 1945 when Japan surrenders and Korea is freed. Well, sort of freed. And his own path gets messy and hard to track from here. We we kind of know physically where he went, but I, I struggle to find how his beliefs shifted, right? Um I, it doesn't look good no matter how you paint it, though. I, the, the Korean anarchist I talked to said that he came out of prison pro-Japan. He'd basically been broken after like 15 years in fucking prison or whatever. Mm-hmm. He ends up, and he's, he comes out right wing. He winds up in Seoul. And when North Korea captures Seoul, he decides he's a communist because now he's in North Korea. And I think he's just kind of every way, which way the wind is blowing. I think he's just trying to fucking live. That's my theory. Yeah. Um, but he also works to unite North and South Korea, which is actually reasonably cool and then he he dies in north korea in 1974 and some people say he was executed by the north koreans and some people say he wasn't and that he was like a loyal north korean and people like arguing about his legacy um very few of those arguments happen in english and which is fine it just means i can't access them besides asking people Mm -hmm. you know maybe he just couldn't handle resisting authority anymore or maybe he stayed really fucking cool and just was like all right, maybe the pure raw defiance was like fucking me up and I should be a little more subtle,
4: you know? Right. I don't know. I don't Um, know either. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know the way to go. Sometimes I just like, I want to burn every single thing down and then someone else tells me to vote and I'm just like, I don't fuck. (laughs) I guess I'll do both.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I think that do both seems like a perfectly reasonable solution, you know? (laughs) And I want, to, I want to close with a poem. It's funny, I don't normally throw much poetry into the show, but I'm talking about these two poets, right? Uh, I want to close with a poem written by Suga, the first woman who was executed, that she wrote in her, her cell while she awaited death. The wounded kept up late in the night, weeping with the pain of wounds old and new. Frozen in my chill bed at night, how often I listen to the stealthy sounds of sabers. Brave, brave children of revolution. Timid, timid, child of tears. Are they the one and same? I look at myself and wonder. And I like it because it, it's that shit you're talking about, that we're talking about, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. are we being brave? Are we also like scared and and crying and, and shit? And, and I think the answer is both, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think sometimes the most scared person can be the most dangerous, you know? Yeah. That's my quote. <laughs> <I also laughs> like yeah, and like,
3: you know, one of the things I try and hold on to, right? Because like, I'm, I'm... Uh, often scared of shit myself right and I'm like okay well you like literally can't be brave unless you're scared because otherwise you're just like foolhardy the word for like not mm. caring about danger is foolhardy yeah, which exactly. is fine like more power of the foolhardy but I hope bravery for myself and, and the other people who want
4: to
3: want to like fight against bad shit absolutely well that is the story of these people
4: <laughs> hell yeah these badass women they make me want to read their books and not a lot of things make me want to read a book I'll, I'll be honest i will look up if there's a movie on either one of these and and then watch that instead but if oh, not i might read a book
3: <laughs> there is the movie about Kenny fumiko rules oh yeah what's it called it's called Anarchist from colony and okay. it's it's a south korean film it gets a little bit it's a little bit on the side of like that it pushes a little bit hard on the them as Korean independence activists, uh-huh. which isn't a lie, right? But it like focuses on one part of it. But it's really fucking good. And it wins all these awards. It came out in oh. twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen
4: or something.
5: Yeah, twenty seventeen.
3: Yeah, it. I I recommend it to everyone. Um,
4: it is so good. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, I learned a lot. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. um got some heroes to look up to. um Got some uh DSA emails to respond to. <laughs> 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 Told them to get a little bit more badass.
3: <laughs> yeah, be I mean, like, yeah. Can we can we go in this direction? Uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Anything anybody wants to plug at the end here, Brody Margaret. Any anything you want to plug?
4: I mean, the only I'll just say the Dark weave again. um We really have to post an episode. Sometimes we take breaks when we're busy, but. Um, there's still a ton of episodes for you to enjoy, um, and then yeah, if follow me on the socials, ao bro bro, uh, and come see me live if you're around. And you can follow me on the internet if you want to see
3: me talk shit and then feel bad that I participate in talking shit on Twitter and then
5: <laughs>
3: log off for several days in shame and then come right back on swinging to disagree with people about minutiae in various leftism and then exactly complain about other people complaining about minutia, or <laughs> which is at magpie killjoy on Twitter or martyr killjoy on Instagram where I mostly post pictures of my dog, uh, which is the much happier place. But I actually don't <laughs> use it as much. I don't use it as much because I don't get that uh, rush of <laughs> complaining. Oh, oh, anyway, the internet's bad. It's all a mistake. <laughs> the whole thing was a mistake. Sophie, where can people follow you on the internet?
0: Uh, you you can follow me at Y underscore Sophie underscore y on Twitter. Uh, you can follow at Cool Media at Cool Media on Twitter and Instagram. Uh listen to Hood Politics with Prop, which is on the Cool Media Network. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's all I'm gonna plug.
3: Oh yeah. Okay. okay.
6: And we'll see be you back. next week.
3: Yeah, we'll be Heat death, heat death. I mean, he continuing stopped. the show, continuing
6: the show. <laughs> 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 Bye.
0: Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts on Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke.